I think you better pull up a chair right now. Got a lot to cover with this oil business. Something else. Um, let me pull up the file here. Um, I'm going to do my best to break down what I've been going into. And, you know, I've obviously been covering oil and files for a long time. But first, you know, this gives us actually the perfect example of how money, magic, and psychopaths have used oil as probably their biggest trick up their sleeve, okay? And that part of the trick is the key to this entire plot that's going on now. You know, that's how they create this dual world. So they get everybody talking about different sides of different supposed coins. Um, yeah, so it's time we take a look because... Fortunately, we've had the time together to share my research, and so it's not a leap for me to say that, um, you know, we've got this oil deal going on now with Russia is in the picture and Venezuela Venezuela is back in the picture, and um, Ukraine, you know, those are the um, commie side of the deals, right? The so-called uh, other side of the equation, the communists, but the Ukraine is now being pushed as the, the nice white guys right but anyway however that works but it really just shows the duality of how things are set up right so in order to believe it all you have to understand that it's all theater on both sides and i think today i should be able to show you a pretty good example of how this so-called theater works because it is in full play right now and it's really one big magic script <laughs> okay so um yeah all the characters are in play you know we got the communists versus the so-called democrats and you know then the ukrainians are the odd men out kind of it right riding into the picture um so yeah so I'll, I'll be able to explain it all today and hopefully it'll it'll make more sense once i kind of wander through some of these notes here so the plan for today is I'll be talking first about some different different things. And in the introduction, I'll be covering several different things, okay? And then I found an excellent clip 
that is about the deal with Venezuela because Venezuela, this country has never really gotten straight recently which person is really the president of Venezuela. And it's kind of a, I've been watching Venezuela out of the corner of my eye for a very long time because of their economic situation. And it, it, it's, it's another form of eugenics. They're doing in Venezuela what they're doing here, but to different degrees. So it's all different degrees of the same eugenics plot by the same group of people, essentially, right? So you can't start saying, well, yeah, Venezuela is this or that. It's just a different, it is a completely different and horrific degree in all of this. And what they're doing is really dualizing that again, too, because of the way that the U.S. has made sanctions on Venezuela, which has likely, this part is true, starved their people to death, you know, and are making them suffer tremendously which of course started off with venezuela discovers oil i'll have links to all of the website they discover oil in the 20s the society prospers things go bad with all this revolution which i believe was likely created by the cia here from this country right they're always overthrowing governments this last overthrow of government is such a sloppy example of how these people perform i mean just the well anyway it, it, it's interesting to take a look at the whole picture so i'm not going to go through the whole thing right here because i'll be getting to that in a minute so i'll be playing after my intro i'll be playing an excellent clip that this comedian pulled together of how this thing in venezuela and which president they ought represent and doesn't represent doesn't make any sense so that'll go in there and then at the very end, I'll be playing my very first interview. I've never shared it online on any of my channel because, well, because I forgot. And also because the uh, audio was so bad on the interview. Now, so I'll be playing that audio. Archie cleaned up the audio as well as we possibly could. Now, the person doing the interview with me, her voice you can hear very well. But picture this. This was in... 2015 so that was seven years ago so i would have been like 64 years old then right and so just to put it so we only really had skype okay zoom you've been hearing about in the last couple of years well back then we only had skype so and back then you know even phones didn't really have that great cameras on them to be recording yourself and you know what did i know right i wrote a book i was doing interviews so i wasn't like a tv studio <laughs> but because my first interview was with somebody who's a journalist who had an online they had an online tv studio at the, during the, that time um yeah i you know they had the audio department and all that stuff so no one mentioned or did a sound check on me so the sound on my end is pretty terrible um but anyway so yeah so what happened was was that and then the camera so I was using the camera on my laptop. So this was a laptop from, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So uh, <clears throat> the minute, you know, when I showed up for the interview online, um, you know, they only talked to you for about two seconds, right? And then they they cut to the interview. Nobody did a sound check or anything. And right, right exactly then they said, well, would you take off your glasses? We're getting some glare. And so I did. Well, what happened was because I was so uncomfortable, you know, it was my first interview, right? <laughs> I 
<laughs> my eyes went into this rapid blinking movement. But anyway, so I'll play you the audio. And yeah, of course, I will. we will post the uh, video version over at the uh, website for you to take a look at yourself. Uh, yeah, and you know, you have to take a look at things. And I'm just sharing research. So I wasn't, <laughs> I had to think, well, that didn't go very well, but I still like the content, so I will share that with you. So yeah, so in looking at things more carefully for yourself when you're looking online, um, let me just talk a little bit about everybody's going crazy online now because of all this release of data from the vaccine manufacturers. Well, um, this stuff has always been alarming business, right? Uh, we've always had the vaccine courts and all that, and as this thing got going, certain things that people didn't really mention was the fact that, you know, no liability on their part in different issues, right? So yeah, so there's all this talk, and I'll just point out a couple of things for you to look for for yourself. There's all this talk now online about, well, the ingredients are doing this and that. Well, yeah, I mean, then um, they're getting this from the actual reports and these new studies that are being released. Well, yeah, all of that is true. All of this is about eugenics, right? It's not just about this particular vaccine. So along with that comes a whole lot of what I consider false comparatives. Conversations like that are going on now. For example, you've heard of the drug Ivymectrin. Well, that a few weeks ago really was, remember, Joe Rogan was supposedly had the virus and he took Ivymectrin and he got slammed by one side for saying it was really horse medicine and why did he take it blah 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 and you know we're a dual world they run us like a this is a magic show this is a dual world right so he's getting slammed for taking ivymectrin so everybody joins on the joe rogan side or the cnn side right well there's a couple of things about ivymectrin one is that it is much cheaper than the other drug because that they're comparing this to because they're saying, don't take ivymectrin, it's really lousy, but take this other drug, right? So here, here already we're stepping into an issue. Right here, we're agreeing that even one of these drugs is probably okay to take, right? I mean, just think about it, right? So so now the, the comparative, the false comparative out there is to push well. They shouldn't have told Joe Rogan that ivymectrin was bad because it helped him. And look, it's even cheaper. Well... I mean, I don't care if they're giving it away, right? Is cheaper the issue? Um, so it got me curious, and I thought, well, what are some of the um, things that are missing in this picture? Well, first of all, um, the common side effects of ivymectrin, right? The one that people are saying is the champion of the two. Okay, this is how you get into this dual world and things are being compared quite, you know, because now they're saying, well, we've all agreed that one vaccine was the, was the answer, uh, not three. Well, think about that one, okay? So let, let me show you some of these common side effects of this ivymectin. Pruritus of the skin, and yes, I had to look all these up because I certainly had no clue. Irritation of the skin that is uncomfortable and results in scratching. Arthagala, that is pain, pain in a joint. Fever, rash, tachycardia, you've been hearing that about these other things with the vaccines we're supposed to give you tachycardia. Uh, it's kind of convenient that nobody's pointed out that ivymectrin can also give you tachycardia. That's a heartbeat rhythm disorder with heartbeats faster than usual, greater than 100 beats per minute. 
lymphadopathy, chronic abnormal enlargement of the lymph nodes, corneal lymphitis, inflammation of the surface of the eye. Now here we get into, we've already gotten into the hearts here, right? All of these meds seem to lead back to our, you know, you know, lymph nodes, hearts, blood, uh, but also the eye because they give themselves eye problems with the, the hormones they're taking. So they could be, if they're doing the same kind of hormones, which I would be suspecting behind some of these secret ingredients probably in these vaccines, um, it probably has something to do with the same kind of hormones that they're taking themselves, right? Now, I'm certainly not a scientist, but they have been giving all of us something that has been morphing people's DNA into this mutant thing, right? So I just found it interesting. That's why I read these side and they're common side effects, okay? And a lot of them get that wonky eye. Another common side effect, cornelia opacity. It's a disorder of the cornea that occurred during due to scarring or clouding. Conjectivitis, inflammation of the transparent covering of the eye because of bacterial or viral infection or allergic reaction. The eye appears swollen and red with itching sensation. Eyelid edema, swelling of eyelids or around the eye area. Dizziness, peripheral edema, Peripheral edema refers to swelling in the body's extremities. Most commonly, it affects the legs and feet. And I have also witnessed a lot of these celebrities getting a lot of problems with edema. That's that swelling thing, because this also can give you facial edema. Headache disorder, nausea, and diarrhea, which... So yeah, um, quite a deal. But anyway, so yeah, they're doing something to morph our DNA. And it seems mighty suspicious to me that ivermectin, the drug they seem to be kind of pushing people toward, um, has a lot of these elements that would lead me to believe should be could be some sort of genetic manipulation going on, right? Because these common side effects seem to be the common things I'm seeing with people who are visibly on a hormone treatment for being transgendered, right? So... Yeah, I mean, they're coming at us in all kinds of ways. I just read the other day that they're unleashed a whole bunch of bioengineered mosquitoes in Florida and some other place. Uh, I'll try to remember put the link in the um, thing. So, yeah, they're, they're coming at us with this eugenics deal in a whole lot of different ways. But um, how I think it's going to play out in a significant way because it all leads back to oil. So let me kind of wander around here because this was a kind of a complicated um, thing for me to take a look at. So they said that Russia's invasion of one of the world's leading bread baskets, that's Ukraine, is deepening the worst surge in global food prices since the Great Depression. Okay, so yeah, um, and also, you'll start to hear that a lot of countries are now saying, I think Ukraine announced today that, well, we're going to cut off exporting. Well, then you take a look at who did Ukraine export to. Um, well, a lot of very poor countries. Um, what did they export? Well, wheat that is mainly used in those very poor countries. So this stuff is a domino effect in eugenics from what I can see, okay? And how did it all get started? Well... I think, in general, petroleum is a product 
that I consider it the backbone of world economics, okay? And I'll be showing you as much as I can here, and then there will certainly be some very interesting links to look at over at the website. So, um, it's a product that is in everything, okay? And everyday petroleum oil, and this country alone, uses an alarming amount of petroleum products compared to other parts of the world, which leads to a lot of issues with fertility. I mean, it, it, petroleum products are not good, okay? <laughs> so, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of horror that goes into the production of petroleum products. But keep in mind, it's something that psychopaths do, and I I know what all those things are, but I. I'm not going to get into what they all are today, but trust me, it is worse than what was going on with the gold thing, and it's still going on now. And remember, the uh, petroleum oil people were the ones who were also sold those uh, FEMA trailers, toxic FEMA trailers. So that's a very ugly part of this whole scenario here, but only so much in one day. So anyway, so uh, yeah, so it's in everything we do. Absolutely everything, okay? So that gives the thing about control and money. Where would we be if they hadn't introduced money? Well, hopefully not arguing with other people. Hopefully not creating wars. It appears to me that most of these wars are created, whether they're fake or not, over money. Um, they're usually created over oil. Um, and yeah, it also leads me to another time frame because supposedly... Oil was discovered in Burbank in 1897. So when we start to look at time frames, we can also start to look at keep looking at the mid 1800s because, you know, oil money getting people from one coast to the other it starts to add up to how long this country has been. You know, the th this country has been, in my view, my view, okay, has been the um, head of the snake since the inception that was the whole goal and there's a lot of reasons why they made that the goal and i think it'll make a little more sense today when you understand more about the petrodollar and how this all kind of another view of how this all tied together um the most famous quote out of 1970 here we go to 1970 again right control oil and you control nations control food and you control the people that was Henry Kissinger, 1970. I did a show about controlling us with food. There's only less than 20 shows over on YouTube to take a look at. And, um, yeah, they're telling us what their plans are, okay? And it appears to me that right now they're putting those plans into action. And you'll have to think what you think when I get done showing you what I know so far, okay? Because it always seems to me that oil has been at the epicenter of every conflict, everything about money, how to how to starve out the poor. You know, there's lots of ways to starve people out, increase their price of gas to get to work. I mean, oil really is something else. And they've been plotting this oil deal, and I'm just going to be very general today, um, with this Green New Deal, okay? The Green New Deal is about cutting back dependency on oil, but it, it's a crazy, crazy argument. I'll show you some examples today. Um, the Green New Deal, for example, they're pushing the electric cars, right? Well, first of all, um, has anybody checked out the electrical grids? I'll put some links over at the website. Um, you know, 
they're calling for like blackouts in California because the electricity is so bad. Um, where does uh, where does electricity come from? Well, I mean, a lot of countries like Turkey still use coal to produce electricity. So it's it's presented in just a this side versus that side. Like once the so-called Democrats are pushing the Green New Deals, the Republicans are saying it's a bad deal. But in reality, it's all just a lie, right? It's all just a lie to manipulate costs and manipulate people and to horrifically punish the most vulnerable. So, yeah, so the whole thing about electric cars makes no sense when you peel back the cover and essentially likely a money scam. I mean, they've been getting, like for Tesla, they've been getting deposits of people and, and canceling their shipments. So who knows? Okay, so, but there's a whole lot to this. And there's also a whole lot to food production. And food production, a lot of it has to do with things made from oil. Fertilizer, for example. Um, a lot of fertilizer comes out of places like Russia. Well, what does fertilizer do? Well, supposedly it doubles the amount of food production. See how you start to become more elitist if you can only produce half of the amount of food because, uh, whoops, we have a fertilizer problem. Well, that just drives the cost up for everybody and it pushes it down the most to the most vulnerable. So this thing really has a lot of elements to it, okay? Um, and so then, of course, they do the the dangerous thing even in this country. I mean, they transport this oil around on trains and stuff. I mean, a lot of this oil business I could really go into for the next week, okay? But anyway, so when you read these things or hear these things about embargoes, um, what countries are being sanctioned, always look at what those countries import and what they export, okay? For example, you get countries like um, Nigeria where they're spending over half of their money or whatever on food. Well, they're importing lots of wheat and stuff, okay? Where are they getting the wheat from? Well, likely a lot of it's coming from Ukraine. So yeah, you can start to take a look at, look backwards to see why they're pulling these tricks, right? So they're pulling these tricks because downstream, it will affect the very most vulnerable. And remember, it is all theater. So how did all this oil really get going, okay? Well, it really started around the 70s here again, okay? And they have this thing called the petrodollar. And I'm going to try to explain this in ways because I had to go back. I've only had peripheral vision of a lot of this. So I had to go back and understand myself how this works. Because since oil is a big deal, I was interested in, well, how is it repaying for this oil, right? Because it appears to me that it is one thing that is highly manipulated, right? So, well, the petrodollar was started by the United States in an agreement with Saudi Arabia in the 1970s with the intent of standardizing oil sales and purchases in U.S. dollars. Petrodollars are U.S. dollars that are used by oil importing countries to pay oil exporting countries for crude oil. So if you're going to play in the Saudi game, with Saudis in the United States, then you have to deal in U.S. dollars is a simple way to look at this, okay? And those are referred to as petrodollars. So anybody that wants to deal with the Saudis, and I believe the U.S. funnels a lot of the oil from here into the Saudi Arabia, but listen, 
this is an ongoing criminal organization, right? So, um, so anyway, so anybody who wants to engage with the Saudis has to do it in U.S. currency set up between the U.S. and them. Now, these other so-called rogue groups, okay, like, um, for example, Libya, supposedly, according to legend, Gaddafi was uh, murdered in the streets over an oil deal. Now, he had not gone along with the petrodollar deal, right? So this, in my view, is another form of controlled opposition, right? Is Gaddafi even dead? Well, I mean, who knows, right? I'll, I'll show you all the links over at the website. You know, I would vote for, um, well, pretty poor stage acting and another part of the drama setup they've been working on, okay? And, yeah, so I don't believe he's dead for a second. Uh, this is a CIA operation, and it's how the dual were. So we got these groups over here who are supposedly fighting the petrodollar, giving it the good fight. We're like with Venezuela, they're actually starving their own people to death by doing this. See, see how it all kind of starts to work? So, yeah, so... Um, there's an interesting thing, and I'll, I'll talk about what happened with Gaddafi, because it shows the staging that went in to manipulate oil, okay? So, supposedly, he was killed when he was trying to flee, okay? And the quote was, Former Libyan leader killed in apparent attempt to flee last bastion, but circumstances of his death remain unclear well they also have some street shots which i will put in the links over at the um <laughs> over at the website and one thing you want to look for when they do these little staging events is they always will use um, close range um, camera shots okay because that really controls the crowd scenes and also um, cuts back on expenses you don't have to have as big of a crowd if you manage your close range shots so anyway so so yeah so this whole legend over Libya is that Gaddafi and them got in a fight with the U.S. and now Libya is in dreadful shape, okay? The the eugenics there has been horrific. So, but it got triggered off by the U.S. and going in there and supposedly taking out Gaddafi. Well, did they take him out? Well, maybe they took him out to a resort somewhere, right? But the act was that he got taken out, so then the suppression of that entire country kicked into high gear, right? So Gaddafi was born in 1942. He died in October of 2011 when he was allegedly uh, killed. He was a Libyan revolutionary, politician, and political theorist. He was the de facto leader of Libya from 1969 to 2011. So yeah, so this whole deal with Libya was about oil, okay? But the interpretation you'll commonly see people say is that Gaddafi was the um, good guy fighting to keep the oil for his people and the U.S. came in and massacred him. Well, that was just how the scene for this drama played out, right? Um, so, yeah, that was just how they took him out and then took down the people there. So, yeah, so for a long time, I've been looking into this oil stuff and then, um, and fertilizer, right? Well, fertilizer. Can you believe this? 
there was just a big fire at a fertilizer plant here. And this is going to be, sorry, this file is kind of in random sections here. You know, they always start fires when they're when they're up to something, right? There was this big fire, and I'll put a link over the other thing. So I'm just, at first, I'm looking into oil and Gaddafi and all of them, and then I run across this fire and <laughs> start thinking, well, this is like the oldest fertilizer plant in this country. So, you know, you got to also take out the fertilizer in this country while you're taking out the fertilizer and other coming in from other countries, right? Because if your plan is to zap out food production. So, yeah, so how I'm looking at this is I think this is the, the oil thing, which all ties back to fertilizer, right? This is the big trick. And, you know, because now people, you know, they all of a sudden are seem to be backing off this vaccine thing, except for now they want everybody's attention to focus on um, should you take ivymectrin or this other drug, which I don't know, do what you want to do, but it's kind of a false equivalency. But anyway, so um, so they've dropped the mask mandate, so people are dropping it. So people seem to think that things are going to go great. Well, we have a long history of them doing horrific things and us actually pitching in to um, help out and making it better. And this keeps going on and on through our existence. And I will get to that in a little bit here about why I think that uh, we are in a very abusive relationship to put it mildly. So anyway, so um, yeah, so right now they're, they're leading people into believing that, yeah, masks are coming off. Well, I, I would contest that their mask is just now really coming off, okay? Because this oil stuff to me is, in fact, their mask really coming off to where this is going, okay? Because what's what's going to happen with the oil thing? Well, the price of food will continue skyrocketing. They've also been staging um, just yesterday um, big fire, not big fires. <laughs> I always thinking they're going to have fires. Um, um big deals with birds being sick in this country. Big bird manufacturing places having to wipe out their entire flocks of chickens and turkeys because they're all getting some sort of bird disease. See, these things become so manipulated that... Anyway, so yeah, so... So, food will continue to escalate because they have the cost of storing electricity, transporting as gasoline, and the food that is produced will also soar in cost, right? And all the droughts they've been creating like the last few years in places like California. I mean, everybody's down their food production. I don't think you need me to go through country by country. Um, California grows a ton of produce for this country. I mean, a tremendous amount of produce for this country. And, you know, they've been down for the count, water issues and, you know, having to ration water. And, you know, these people are not really terrific planners, okay? So, um and I've said for years, they're making it up as they go along, and the output is not looking good because California is not going to be producing much. So now they really have fertilizer and oil to throw us a punch, right? So I'm trying to look at what does that punch going to look like, right? Because now I think, and before, you know, they were complaining about the lazy and poorly paid truckers acting like they should, you know, still keep getting behind those trucks and stuff. Well, this is going to bring some interesting issues up to do with food because, of course, everything gets transported by trucks primarily, right? So now they can point to, besides the um, 
trashing the truck drivers, they could point to the cost of fuel to send prices off the roof. And it'll just make it look like, well, this just happened, right? That's out of their hands. I mean, after all, it's a crisis. And then they'll go through the usual, let's all join together to conserve. So we always are asked to help clean up the messes, right? And being kind and decent people, historically, we have tended to jump into action. You know, they say conserve for the war, people move in with rationing coupons. They say do that, we rush in for that, okay? So they know that about us. They absolutely know that about us. Look how often the same strategy has worked in our lifetimes or in the lifetimes of our relatives prior to us. Always crisis, we jump in to help for the solution. Then when we get punched down, everyone allows themselves to think this. Well, no one was to blame. Let's carry on in the exact same abusive relationship. Although we don't call it an abusive relationship, right? What do we do? We help. We apologize for and we accept these abusers into our lives. No matter how great the harm, and every time they run to us with a fake rescue time and time again, right, from what the abuser has created, the situation, the war, whatever they've created, they run to us with a fake rescue every time. What do we do? Well, we essentially welcome their help with open arms. All is forgiven again, right? After all, no one is to blame. They are the victims because by that point, we have also convinced ourselves that they just don't need to be blamed because they're victims. And we're making the best of it always by pitching in even more. So we have essentially, and these are just my thoughts, okay? We have essentially lived in an abusive relationship our entire lives. But, you know, we had to think it was something else, right? The abuser is the one we have selected with our own free will to be in charge. For example, we think of marriages being bad or somebody is being abusive, right? Well, what is this? What is it when the abuser is the one in charge? So how exactly did we get here? You know, I'm thinking the last couple hundred years of this abuse... I think that's been enough with me, okay? And it's it's really essentially about money, magic, and abuse. How many marriages get split up over money? How many businesses, how many people get abused? How many children go to bed hungry because of money? Money and the byproduct of oil is, I think, at the head of what this eugenics deal is all about. And clearly, I'll be getting back more with this communism stuff, but I want to know more about how we got so abused. And really, as importantly, how in the heck did we all collectively look the other way for so long? So, and I'm not looking at this as a tool to make us feel guilty or bad, because we need to collectively join together to sort some things out, okay? Because how do we ever consider changing something if we don't understand it? It's really as simple as that in my view of this situation. So 
Next will be the interesting clip about the uh, deal in Venezuela about, you know, wh who's the president, who isn't the president and all of that. And then my interview will be after that. So enjoy the show. So the United States now is banning oil from Russia because we want to sell more liquefied gas to Europe. That, no one's telling you that in the news. That's a big part of it. We overthrew their government in 2014. And now we're arming Nazis to help fight Russia because of... And uh, if you think there's any other reason, you're a sucker. And uh, what I want to show you now is that we're going to Venezuela. We're begging Venezuela for oil. Now, remember when we were trying to overthrow Venezuela? Watch this. Remember, this is from the State of the Union in 2021. <laughs> so this is just from a year ago. We are supporting the hopes of Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans to restore democracy. The United States is leading <laughs> a 59-nation diplomatic coalition against the socialist dictator of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro. <laughs> Oh, look, they all, they all applaud. <laughs> Maduro's a dictator. Maduro is an illegitimate ruler, a tyrant who brutalizes his people. But Maduro's <laughs> grip on tyranny will be smashed. And Do we ever get tired of this script? We don't. Oh, this guy's a brutal dictator. We got to help the people. If you cared, if you cared about people, you'd first start by giving Americans health care. You don't care about people, which is why you you want to overthrow Maduro for oil. Okay. Broken. Here this evening, a very brave man who carries with him the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of all Venezuelans. Watch this. Joining us in the gallery is the true and legitimate president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido. Mr. President, please take this message back to your family. You see, they all stood up. There's a Tulsi impersonator behind him. <laughs> Look at that show. Look at that show. A heartwarming display of bipartisanship from Pelosi. I mean, sure, she didn't give him the standing knuckle rub, but it still was nice to see. So that's what they all cheered. That's the real president of Maduro. I mean, of, of Venezuela is Juan Guaido. That's the real president. And, Juan Guaido? Uh, yeah. And here's Joe Biden. Joe Biden says, Nicolas Maduro is a dictator. I strongly condemn his regime's violent takeover of the Venezuelan National Assembly, the country's sole remaining democratic institution. Joe Biden coming out strong, strongly condemning the Venezuelan strongman with a strong statement condemning his strong arm tactics. <laughs> uh, here is uh, Pete Judy Bug. He, he says the illegitimate takeover of the Venezuelan National Assembly is further evidence that dictator Maduro will stop at nothing to consolidate his grip on power. I stand behind Juan Guaido uh -oh. and the Venezuelan people as they strive to reclaim their democracy and defend their rights. Boy, even even Pete Ladybug 
is standing behind <laughs> John Guaido and the entire nation of Venezuela. Isn't that great? As transportation secretary, he really has nothing to do with any of it, but he's with them on Twitter. Isn't that nice? <laughs> Isn't that nice? And there it is. Biden will recognize Guaido as Venezuela's leader. Top diplomat says, boy, that this handsome young man is the true leader of Venezuela. And that's who we call president. Maduro is not our president of Venezuela. <laughs> Venezuela Guaido says U.S. to continue backing him as leader. He's darn right we do. <laughs> This is about morals and democracy and promoting moral democracy. Some things you don't compromise on. <laughs> Even Secretary of State Antony Blinken said in a statement Monday that the U.S. supports the Venezuelan opposition and Guaido, whom he referred to as the interim president. Look at that. Look at that. Uh, he said you can't trust. He said when Nicolas Maduro's government won a majority of seats, that was that election was flawed. That's what Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said. Sec He's the Secretary of State right now. He said you can't trust the Venezuela election. Did you know that if you live in Venezuela and think the election was rigged, you can be censored or worse? Imagine living in a country where you could lose your very platform for questioning election results. Imagine that, Kurt. Let's all just take a second and try to imagine what kind of living hell that would be like. I can't get my head around it. Can't get my head around that, that you could be deplatformed and censored for questioning the outcome of an election. <laughs> so why do I show you all that? Because I show the U.S. officials make rare trip to Venezuela discussing resuming oil imports to help replace <sighs> Russian fuel. Rare. There you go. <laughs> they should just play the Larry David music. Now. <laughs> yeah, really? The Curb Your Enthusiasm music should be playing right there. What? Wasn't the last trip when that one guy went and tried to throw Venezuela himself with all yes. like three? Yes, uh, that's right. That's the last trip to Venezuela. A group of senior U.S. officials flew to Venezuela on Saturday for a meeting with President Nicolas Maduro's government to discuss the possibility of easing sanctions on Venezuelan oil exports oh as the Biden administration weighs a ban on imports of Russian oil and gas, according to two people familiar with <laughs> Ooh, that's embarrassing. That's embarrassing <laughs> after all that shit Biden and Trump were talking and Antony Blinken. That's that's embarrassing. Now they got to go with their dick in their hands. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. Hey. Maybe Maduro's too. <laughs> hey, hey, ha, 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 ha. We were joking. Ha, ha, ha. When I said you were a violent dictator who oppressed his people, let me finish. The trip is the highest level U.S. visit to the socialist state in years and comes as the United States is seeking to isolate Russia for its invasion to Ukraine. Venezuela, the Kremlin's most important ally in South America, used to be a significant supplier of crude to the United States before exports were hobbled by domestic mismanagement and crippling sanctions from Washington. That's what it was crippling. Look at the Washington Post do a little fucking propaganda for them. Uh, in recent weeks, former American lawmakers have pushed for the United States to ban Russian oil and gas exports while lifting restrictions on Venezuela, home to the world's largest oil reserve. Now you know why we were trying to overthrow Venezuela? It's home to the world's largest oil reserve. 
And if they got a large oil reserve, it's just a matter of time before we got to bring their people some democracy. <laughs> the U.S. delegation included Roger Carstens, the special president envoy for hostage affairs, Juan Gonzalez, the National Security Council senior director for Western Hemisphere Affairs, and Jimmy, Jimmy Story. That's his Jimmy name. Story. <laughs> hey, what's the deal with Jimmy Story? What's, the, what's his narrative? <laughs> what's this guy's narrative <laughs> the u.s ambassador to venezuela said one person familiar with the visit the trip comes just days after maduro and russian president vladimir putin spoke over the phone the telephone about boosting the partnership <laughs> between their countries look at that can you imagine can you imagine, though, having to be on that trip and you're the guy who has to ask Maduro for oil? Do you think it's like the guy from Firefest? That, that, is that who they got to ask Maduro, the guy who organized? Remember Firefest? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure that guy's prepared to blow Maduro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'll do anything for the company. <laughs> uh, yeah, Maduro's probably like, why are you asking me? Why don't you ask Juan <laughs> Guaido, the real president? <laughs> Okay, uh, here we go. During the trip, U.S. officials are also trying to secure the release of six former executives of Houston-based Sitco Petroleum Corp, an oil refiner formerly controlled by the Maduro government, according to a person familiar with the visit and spoke on Gazabadabadabada. <laughs> hey, maybe Juan Guaido can free the hostages. I don't handle that. I'm not even president, said Maduro. <laughs> The Sitco Six were arrested during a business trip to Caracas in November, <laughs> November 2017 and charged with money laundering, embezzlement, racketeering, and participating in organized crime. They, they denied the allegations, but you know they did all that. Read the Sitco Six. <laughs> the Sitco Six, that's who we have to beg for? The Sitco Six. We have to beg for them, and then that idiot who planned the Bay of Pigs invasion? Piglets. By, by the way, meanwhile, Steve Donzinger's life is ruined. If you know who that is, that's a good... The U.S. officials are also seeking to negotiate the release of two former Green Berets who were accused in a plot to remove Maduro, as well as a former Marine who was arrested. You ready for this? While traveling along the Caribbean coast of Venezuela. That's how the Washington Post describes it. Oh. What was he doing? He was traveling he was. along the Caribbean coast of Venezuela. Kurt, he was traveling. He was just backpacking with his kids. <laughs> that sounds like when you, that stupid videos that tell you when you get pulled over to say, I'm not driving, officer, yeah. I'm traveling. <laughs> that's, how they, that's how they framed it. Uh, while traveling. Really? Well, what was he doing? Two former U.S. Green Berets are sentenced to 20 years and jailed for a coup, failed coup in Venezuela. Matthew Heath, 39, was arrested September 10th, traveling along the Caribbean coast, accused of scheming with three Venezuelans to sabotage oil refineries and other infrastructure to stir unrest. Authorities said they found images of targets on Heath's cell phone, and they displayed pictures taken indoors of a grenade launcher, plastic explosives, and a bag of U.S. dollars they said was being transported by the terrorist cell. So, Traveling along the, the coast, the U.S. and Venezuela broke off 
diplomatic relations in 2019 after the U.S. government recognized Juan Guaido as the country's legitimate president, accusing Maduro of winning election, re-election through fraud. Okay. U.S. officials have signaled that Biden administration will continue to recognize Guaido as Venezuela's rightful leader. But in an interview with America's Quarterly this week, Gonzalez said the administration is focused on negotiations rather than toppling. We really need the oil. <laughs> we really need the goddamn oil, okay? All right? And uh, at least we're offering a great deal. We still think you should be... Con- <laughs> we still think you should be gaddafi but we aren't going to focus on that right now. Deal? Is that a deal? Actually, there will be a stick in your ass. Don't worry. But right now, yeah, we're just focused on your oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Normally, we'd want to have someone uh, debowel de- you. What is that? That's a word for that. What's it called? Disembowel. Disembowel. We'd like someone to disembowel you. But the hard way. The hard way. <laughs> Whereas the previous administration's theory of change was based on regime collapse, ours is that only a negotiation will lead to concrete assistance. Ah, we don't want them. Come on. That's amazing. Where do, where, we just want to talk. Jesus. Oh, my God. Did you, did, did you, did you, <laughs> Did you suddenly realize that now our regime is about to collapse? Uh, Richard Metter says, hold on. Why are U.S. officials traveling to Venezuela to speak with Maduro? I thought Guaido was the president. <laughs> Laugh my ass out. Glenn Greenwald says, it's borderline amusing that the entire bipartisan United States political class spent years proclaiming that the real leader of Venezuela is President Juan Guaido, but the minute they need something that's instantly abandoned for President Maduro, we'd like to meet with you. That's right. Oh, I can't wait to work. So so when we're back uh, to trying to kill this guy Maduro, hopefully Putin will be cool uh, when we have a go to him. So that's it. President Maduro, we'd like to meet with you. Oh, by the way, uh, U.S. is going to start importing oil from Gavin Newsom's hair. (laughs) Also, I don't know if you know this, service stations are widening their signs in preparation. (laughs) You see how they're widening their signs in preparation for higher gas prices? (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. There you go. There you effing go. Now you know the rest of the story and why we're getting oil from Maduro. And they're all together. There's no separation between Nancy Pelosi and people like Donald Trump or Mike Pence or anybody when it comes to Ukraine, Venezuela, all that shit.
Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Media Mayhem. I feel oddly cheerful to be introducing today's episode because it's going to be a really kind of a dark one a little bit, but something I think you're going to find as fascinating as I did when I read the book that we're going to be talking about today. The book is called Psychopaths in Our Lives, My Interviews, and our guest is Diane Emerson. She is the author who wrote this book in which she interviewed a number of self-described and or diagnosed psychopaths, although many of them preferred to be called sociopaths, and we'll be talking about that. We're going to be asking questions today about whether you know someone who's a psychopath, how can you tell, how you, can you prevent a psychopath from destroying your life, and a number of other questions. But first, let me introduce our fabulous guest who wrote this wonderful and really interesting book and kind of chilling at times. Welcome to the show. Hello, Allison. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy that you're here, Diane. I've been wanting to have you on for a while, ever since I read your book. I mean, I think it was the most interesting thing because you did interview a number of self-proclaimed psychopaths, although sometimes they wanted to use the term sociopaths, and you kept your interviews so incredibly non-judgmental, which I think drew out of them an incredibly, incredible amount of information that we often don't get to hear from people that are psychopaths or been diagnosed as psychopaths. So first of all, what got you interested in writing such a book and even interviewing and starting a relationship of sorts with these type of people? Well, I started the first online victim support forum about 18 years ago. This is like pre-Google when I was, you know, I used to be a really big true crime reader. And so I was just, looking for information, you know, folks first got PCs in the home, which I know it's quite hard for a lot of people to believe, but, you know, the old dial-up days, and um, I was just sitting around, I, I would think of interesting topics, because I finally had access, you know, having to cruise to the library and all that, so I just started looking at psychopaths, and um, basically just started a whole discussion forum where I was storing information, and lo and behold, um, people started showing up, and it was interesting, because the first people to show up were actually parents of suspected psychopaths. And over the years, they've proven to be the most elusive. Um, so for years, I thought about writing about from the victim standpoint, because of having my forum, I've made a lot of observations about, you know, what kind of makes people, what, what, how people can become victims and how they can, can they even get re-victimized? Um, so I had my own little sets of theories about things. And then over the years, you know, I made about, I don't know, about four different starts. And it just never felt right, because I'm not a victim myself. So but I think we all can be. Um, so over the years, I get contacted by these psychopaths. And, you know, I basically have always had a no psychopath allowed at my forum because it kind of unsettles the, <laughs> kind of unsettles the members. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was just kind of one of those things. All of a sudden, I had a few in a row, and I thought, hey, maybe this is a new angle. Maybe, you know, maybe I can see if some of my judgments about them are really correct or not. Because I had a lot of pre- Three ideas from the victim's viewpoints of things, um, of what these people would be like. Um, no. Like I thought, they're all liars. Well, they're really not all liars. Um, so anyway, so go ahead. So that, that's kind of my... Well, no, um, that's exactly... the what. What is true, I guess, about the preconceived notions? I mean, what constitutes a psychopath? How did you decide that the three people that you would interview in your book were truly psychopaths, truly people that could be helpful in the understanding of what constitutes a psychopath and how a psychopath behaves? Well, two of them had diagnosis, and I know enough about the diagnosis process to be able to ask them the questions. And the most, the, the most talkative one, Fred, was self-diagnosed. But as you start to go along, and I, I wasn't really 
I was going to withhold my judgment until I got through all the interviews, just kind of to see how it played out. And because of doing it in writing, I felt like I would probably get a lot closer to the truth to see if anybody's like trying to trick me or, you know, what the level of, um, what the level of um, deceit was going to be in the conversations. So that's why I decided to have them in writing because I didn't want to give them access to any of my emotions. Like when they said really horrific things, I didn't want them to see me for that. <laughs> um, so, um, so I refused to do anything beyond writing to them. So once I got them going, it was just fascinating how it all just started unfolding as far as, and I thought, well, if I learn something, then I'll write about it. And if I don't, then it was probably just a, you know, few months talking to people. Um, and you again, I thought, I learned a lot. Well, you take a kind of an interesting approach and it's, it's very calm and it's very non-judgmental. And it is, even if they are making a joke about something that would make you probably in person show some level of discomfort, you sort of say, I could see how that might be funny. I mean, there's a, there's a bit of a, a, a camaraderie and you're actually accused at times when you compliment one of them of being uh, of manipulative. So I'm curious, what was the persona that you wanted to take on as the interviewer here, and and did you purposely do certain things? Yeah, I very purposely. Um, two of them I interviewed just once a day. I would I would hear from them each day, and they were very um, scheduled in how they would respond to things. Um, so I basically um, decided that I wasn't going to judge, um, and. I wasn't going to show any of my emotions because that would kind of send things zinging in a direction that I, I didn't think would be very productive. Now, personally, I'm a fairly active kind of personality type. So, yeah, so it really takes some, but I, I spent many years in marketing stuff. So I'm used to putting on a certain persona and not really going, oh, my God, what? <laughs> um, so when I had those, oh, my God, moments, um, luckily I had the safety of it was only an email. So hey, I'm sorry, it was only... It would only be an email. Right. Um, okay. Which a couple of them were pretty bad. I mean, I literally went, <gasps> I mean, <laughs> what? So did I. I mean, that's exactly, I mean, I'm going to start off here. What are some of the things that are the checklist? And then what are some of those traits that go on the psychopathy checklist for you that you saw in these three individuals you were interviewing? And then what are some of the, the issues that you think are more falsehoods or sort of a popular myth about all psychopaths, like the lying part? Yeah, well, first of all, I think the number one thing is is that the dividing line between them and us is that they don't have a conscience, and they never will. Um, and the other interesting thing is that one thing that doesn't show up on the checklist is that they're always a victim. No matter what the deal is, they're always going to be the victim in that scenario, um, which is a way that they get people to empathize with them. Um, so the checklist is pretty standard. I mean, pathological lying, um, glib, um, people throw in narcissistic, but not all narcissistic personalities are psychopaths, but all psychopaths are narcissistic. Um, so the words really get thrown around to a lot of confusing details at times. Um, but the main underlying thing is, does this person have a conscience is what you want to ask yourself? Um, and they have a way of lying that, but they look for a profile person to do this to also. So there, it's, a, it's a combined factor. It, it's a thing to explain is that it's a combined factor of things with the people. You can go by that checklist and first of all, I think if you're on, online looking up, is my partner a liar <laughs> all these things, you're probably in a little deeper than you probably should keep going. Um, 
but yeah, so there is a standard 10 point checklist that people do refer to, but it's more subtle. And the more subtle things are probably the lack of a conscience. Is there a real dividing line between, is it a borderline, a narcissistic, or a psychopath? And do, let me ask you this too. What was the difference between, I got the sense, first of all, in your book, and, and, and I know that the audience that's watching is probably, when you read the book, going to get the same sense that the people that Diane were interviewing, um, the different folks, wanted her to believe that they were not unkind. And I thought that was very interesting. Was that also, I mean, they wanted you to believe that they were not unkind or purposely evil or purposely mean, but they also seemed to want to control the terms in which what you called them. So what is the difference? Let me ask the first question about the sociopath versus the psychopath and why the preference for the word sociopath. Well, in most people's minds, and I think it's probably true of the media's mind, they see psychopath as like a Ted Bundy kind of a guy who's going to leap out of the alley and get you. Um, and and we usually use the term sociopath as somebody who is not, I, I don't know, I think you are divided into like the killer versus the non-killer. And it seems to me that that's how these guys need the same term. They view sociopath as the less of the evil of the two. Okay. Um, because after all, they claim that they would never murder anybody. Right. Um, so they tend to have that dividing line going on, even in their own mind, which I kind of see in the media. When you look at the media, you'll see somebody will say, well, this guy is a psychopath, sociopath, narcissist. Well, you know, take a pick. Um, so I think in, in both the media and even the doctor psychopath's minds is that they see a sociopath as less of a less of a demonic kind of a personality. Now, um, in terms of them trying to affect your view of them, and I guess that would go for all three men that you were speaking with, what did you get the sense or is that am I reading into it but it did seem to me that almost to a man they tried to explain to you that they don't purposely want to go out there and do something that is mean and or evil yeah they do that and they have an interesting way of doing that um, like for example um, two of them talked about somebody dying in their lives and these were these are just things that they brought up okay one of them was in context with, which would have been Steve with that young girl who died near him. And his first thing out of shoot is, well, I didn't kill her. <laughs> um, not that this girl was dying, I find funny. It's just that it's kind of more of a nervous laugh on my part. But um, it would be like if I said to you, gee, Allison, my best friend died in a car crash. Um, I wouldn't feel propelled to say, but I wasn't driving the car drunk, you know? Um, and he, yes, and he also went on to to question the reactions of other people to the death, yeah. the parents feeling responsible since they also didn't, like, kill, drown her. Yeah, yeah, and they feel like, um, it's like when, when I ask them about, because if you watch a lot of crime shows, which I'm, I don't know if you do, but I know I do. Yes, um, I do. You can almost kind of pick the killer out in the crowd because it's like they're at the funeral and they're, like, texting or laughing and um and or they'll take the stand in a murder trial um so you know they just have that supreme case of arrogance um so yeah but i thought it was really fascinating because i really wasn't thinking the guy killed that girl um but it did make me kind of think about it when he was so quick to say that because it wouldn't be anything i would ever say um same way that i probably wouldn't be laughing at a funeral or um you know i was just trying to get into some things that i'd observed in real life why do they do these things i mean what's that about um, the, other thing, yeah. 
The other person that I found particularly interesting too was that there is a former Iraq veteran who talks yeah. about his experience and how he saw death and um, that there was a point where um, Iraqis were coming towards him and then some of the Iraqis that they had to kill were young children and how many of the other medics and this man was operating as a medic rushed over and were near tears and he was busy actually thinking about whether or not there would be a food shipment later in the day. So I yeah. thought, and, and, but he recognized that his reaction was not the same as other people, but he didn't seem to recognize that it was bad. Is that your interpretation? Yeah, totally. Um, the, the, they were, both of them at that time were describing when they first started thinking something's different about me and it happened around a death. And when they started, these people are cats like observers about things. So when they were observing how everybody else was responding, that's another thing. I didn't really understand going in how self-reflective they were all the things. Um, so, yeah, so they really picked up on that, that, yeah, people, people were picking me out because I wasn't getting all over and all upset over this death and stuff. And so, yeah, that's when they started becoming aware of who they were, which is kind of interesting. And let me ask you this question, and this is something that fascinated me because you were kind of fascinated with the concept of gaslighting. And for our younger viewers, this term frequently comes from the film Gaslight with um, Ingrid Bergman. But you actually uh, said and asked the question of Fred, did you, you know, did you... Once you would explain the term gaslighting, they, he seemed to embrace it. And he said something along the lines, and this is what you write about his comment, make them flicker, make them dim, make them blaze brighter than ever before, push the limits of brightness and darkness without overstepping and turning them off or burning them out. Um, and he, I, he said this, and to me it just seemed so clearly to talk about what it's like to manipulate somebody's mind. I mean, it was kind of almost a brilliant description. What was your takeaway from the various people you interviewed, the three men, on the issue of gaslighting? Well, I was kind of surprised that none of them knew what the term was. Um, but then a lot of people don't know what the term is. But yet they'll hear the term because in all these years, really, victims haven't said much about it. They haven't really used that term to classify. They've said a lot of things like, I felt like I was being driven crazy and things like this. But no one really was talking about gaslighting. Um, so that had been on my mind when in the interviews, is what, what this gaslighting stuff is. We both sides see it the same way. And, um, yeah, they, they really latched onto it really enthusiastically. They were like, oh, yeah, that's like one of my favorite things. Um, so they clearly saw that it was like the number one thing in their toolkit. Okay, um, let's explain what it is. We'll stop right now and, and just explain a little bit without giving, you know, what what we mean when we're using the term gaslight based on, uh, based on the film, but not telling the entire film. But what does that term mean and how did you explain it to them? Oh, what it means was, I didn't really explain it to them. I, I just asked them about it and then they scurried off and looked it up. Um, but what it basically means is altering somebody's sense of reality and destabilizing them. Um, and it all circles back to the number one goal they have is to control, total control. So the more they can destabilize their victim the, and make you start to feel a little bit loony, then they get people around you think that you're a little bit loony. That way they have complete control over you in a very um, sick kind of way. Um, but very subtle because when people are being gaslit well, like by these guys, I bet you they probably never knew what happened to them. Um, maybe in hindsight, some victims may know, hey, I was gaslit when they 
come to terms with what the relationship was about. But if it's done well, you don't know what's being done. That's the scary part. Now, what are some of the techniques? Because I was a little surprised as I listened to them about the, the lengths to which they were willing to go to destabilize and to control partners, friends, bosses, whoever their target would be. Uh, well, I, I found that they went from everything very subtle to like moving your keys around to convince you that you're getting a little bit, you know, daffy in your memory about things. Um, all the way to Steve took it really to the extreme with the um, giving medication to his victims, which that was like probably one of my more horrifying moments when I read that because that never really entered my radar because you're doing that as far as gaslighting to destabilize somebody using medication to do that. Um, so, you know, their examples were just very from, you know, the one guy would pound on the wall to kind of disrupt your sleep and they, they just had all these little tricks that they pulled. Um, that really, if you weren't looking for it, you wouldn't have any idea that it was going on because they're, they're doing it so well that you really, they, they want you to call your judgment into, your judgment into the front of your mind. And they can take control of you the more destable they get you to be. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's gaslighting of everything from small little things like moving your keys around to maybe going in and changing appointments around your calendar and, you know, saying, well, you don't remember that. I remember that. Um. Everything was settled to the other extreme. Um, and there were also I, hints. You said that the remarks about, oh, you're clearly losing your mind or just planting yeah. seeds um, to, to make you begin to doubt yourself, to make the person, their target, begin to doubt themselves. I, I thought that the, the changing, the medication was particularly chilling because he actually had a plan of how to do it subtly so that the person wouldn't recognize it. Yeah, well, he, I was also asking some of those questions because I knew about how long it would take to take effect. So I thought, well, gee, is he really telling the truth here? Um, is there some grandstanding thing with medication thing? So no, he shot right back with three weeks. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, but also, I think it's, it's, a, it's a twofold thing because in, that, in his case, I don't think the family and friends particularly liked him, okay? And so then... If he gives the person medication, they start to be a little bit squirrely, okay? So then he can, he can become more of a hero kind of person because then now he's the one propping up the person who's disabled, which is really kind of sick, but that's how it all works. Um, so, yeah, he definitely had the most far-ranging thing. I mean, really stuff that you really couldn't stay awake up at night and think about. It's, yeah. Um, I have to say, the other thing that I thought was very interesting and something that I have seen in friends, I mean, when they become involved with now, I know, in, with psychopaths, it was this that really moved me. And I just want to take a minute to explain it to the viewers. Um, you talked about how Steve said that he frequently played the damage card. And he said, you need to be careful if you do this too early in a relationship, basically. It needs to be something that you tell them about yourself that no one else need, knows, and it needs to be something that's not normal. And then on the list was hearing voices, but just one, being yeah. molested when you're young, mm -hmm. uh, uh, watching a close friend commit suicide, being bashed by your parents at a young age, having severe depression, and then surprisingly, the remorseless ex-hitman. I have to tell you, though, I, I thought this was a really fascinating list of, of things because you often, it goes with your assessment that this person is always a victim 
and that um, that molestation thing, I, I had seen people use that a lot to control and to elicit sympathy from people that they're with. I mean, you yeah. know, having been the victim uh, or uh, of being molested when young. So I, I think it's kind of, is this a, a, a playing this kind of, what, what did he, that he called the damage card, something that you saw in all of the subjects? Definitely, definitely. Because um, remember, they're, they're going for a person that has a fairly weak boundary structure and a person who has a high level of empathy. So what better thing? So let's say one night they snap at you and maybe they let that evil sneak out a little bit soon, too soon. Then they can always fall back on that, but you don't understand me. I was abused. Um, so they know how to take that and how to pivot on it. And the hitman thing, I thought that was really interesting because I had just seen a couple of those primetime shows or Dateline or whatever. And one woman was so caught up with this guy that he was a hitman. <laughs> and so when, 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 he, when Steve said that, it didn't surprise me at all because I'd seen a couple shows where people got sucked down that drain that, yeah, I was dating this guy, he was an ex-hitman, that's how he had to be isolated. And it's all about isolation control. So I was kind of amazed when I saw those shows, and then I was really amazed when he brought it up, you know, how well it would work. Um, I know I, I don't think it would work for me, but it does seem to work for a lot of people. Now, when they go off to target someone, I mean... If a psychopath, I mean, they, they claim to notice when there are other psychopaths and, and that they're such a good psychopath that they can outmaneuver the other psychopath. I guess that's where some of the arrogance comes into it. But what kind of victims are, are these guys, the people that you spoke with, looking for? What makes for their perfect victim? Uh, and do they kind of target the same sort of personality over and over again? I would definitely, without a doubt, say yes. Um, because over the years, that's my biggest observation about victims at my form, um, that they tend to have very high levels of empathy, so they'll be very sympathetic for a, a, you know, an outcast person's cause, no matter, no matter if they're successful in business and money, whatever. Um, they, will, they will show up a lot of empathy. They will, one thing that every victim has said over the years is that they brush past the red flags. When the red flag first went up, they painted it white. They just brush right on past it. Um, so it takes a, they look for a certain type down to one guy was even will talk about how your confidence level, all of them talk about the confidence level. They'll watch you for your eye movement. They'll look for your strengths. They, they really know how to hone in on people's weaknesses, and that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for somebody who's going to call them for what they are. They're looking for somebody who can control. Now, is everyone have some weakness, though? Could everyone potentially still be a victim? I mean, it seems to me that, uh, yes, there might be different levels of confidence and there might be people that are more empathetic and more understanding than others. But if you're really looking for a weakness to exploit, generally you're going to find one. Yeah, I think that I think that we all can be subjected to a certain level of that. Um, and the reason is because most of us want to believe the good in other people. Um, so people have a really hard time with evil. So it's really hard for people to, they can see it on the movie screen, they can kind of understand theory what it is, but there's something about that coldness and the evil that people really want to reject, um, which is interesting because they, they will come out and tell people, hey, I'm evil, and people go, <laughs> come on, you're kidding. Um, so, you know, sometimes maybe it's a matter of listening to what they're saying to you. Um, so, yeah, I think they do definitely pick a personality type. They pick somebody they can control. In any case, Ponzi schemes, you know, relationships, work environments, whatever the case may be. 
And there was an interesting thing that they almost blame that person who has too much empathy, who refuses to see the red flags. The person was too stupid to not be taken advantage of, and that that is, in some respect, their own fault. And there is some conversations in, in some of your interviews where that's clearly what your subjects say to you, that, you know, I didn't want to do that. I mean, you know, but if somebody's going to be that gullible or that weak or listen in that way, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, they do have that kind of thinking. It's almost a um, removing themselves from any kind of fault because their 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 go-to position is always to become the victim. Now they're not really a victim, but remember that situation works for a lot in a lot of scenarios because you're not going to keep grilling somebody if you find out that oh my god he was molested or like hey, his parents are terrible or he's all lonely and stuff. So most decent people will back off at that point. So they know exactly what those triggers are to get you to back off and getting too close to them with your questioning. Um, so yeah, they, they need to see, they need you to see them as a victim, but they're really not victims because that seediness kind of comes through in their conversations where they're kind of like the one guy, when he said, um, Steve, it was said, well, I don't treat them any worse than allow themselves to be treated. Well, you know, that's pretty accurate. It's sick, but it's pretty accurate. Um, so yeah, they, they play the victim, but they don't really see themselves as a victim. They see themselves as a victor, but yet they play the victim card. I'm explaining that. Okay. I think it's kind of interesting, too, I mean, in terms of the issue of of empathy. Um, and, and you actually, there is a quote in the book about the existence of evil that that in some respects a lot of people reject that as, a, as part of being human. That it exists, that the that evil is a part of humanity, and, and I think it's quite interesting that you that you pointed that out because uh, I I'm, it sort of gets to the issue of the red flags. So what kind of a person is it that ignores the red flags Be, beyond just an empathetic person or or kind of a forgiving person? What what kind of target ignores red flags or or and doesn't believe really absorbs the fact that they may be in the presence of evil? Well, I think people in their wanting to always see the best in a situation, which is it's a very good trait, but it can also be a very disabling trait when you deal with evil people. Um, people, I think, for history have been fascinated by evil, but then yet really when they're in the presence of it, they seem to just kind of buckle up and not really want to acknowledge that it was there. Like, look at the interviews they do after these killers kill, you know, town full of people and stuff, and the interview neighbors. That guy was just the greatest guy on earth. And then you peel back a little bit, and then you start to see that, well, Bob wasn't so great, okay? But the neighbors will say, yeah, I was surprised he killed all the people because he seemed so nice. He was part of the kids' baseball game. So I think it's, people also don't really pay close enough attention to other people. Do you think that the that? psychopaths, um, they sense that person who doesn't want to believe in the existence of evil, and or they sense that person who isn't particularly observant and isn't even, I mean, missing the red flags, isn't even seeing the red flags because they're not particularly observant? Does that also, I mean, is yeah. that something that the, the predator notices in the prey? Yeah, and they try it out in little ways. Like they'll say to the victim, I'm really evil and I'm really dark and stuff. And really the victim, I, and I read this for many years, the victims who say these things, which I always found kind of curious. Um, because here again at my forum, I've never really been on the advice business because I believe that people learn a lot better if they write and talk about their experience and they're going to learn more than, it's not for me to say, well, I think you should get therapy. Um, so 
even even when faced with somebody saying, hey, I'm really evil, I have an evil past, people just make some joke about it and, and just keep seeing the person, which that's the part that kind of has always kind of puzzled me a little bit. Um, why would you just ignore that kind of information? Um, because you don't think, you know, it would be the same kind of thing. The guys had a, a bad relationship with everybody that you know, like in this certain kind of field or whatever. Why do you think that you're different than the rest of them? Well, because you, you can change that person. Um, and really, I, here, here's how I look at it in my life. is you told me who you are, I just need to listen to what you're saying. I mean, because I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, in most cases, they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you. So it's a matter of um, if you have weak boundaries, do get some therapy and work on your boundaries because the signs are all there. I mean, these people don't just creep into your life during the night. I mean, they they have a very, very um, accurate way that they, they target you. They have a way that they manipulate the situation. They have a way that they get you under their control by isolating you from your friends and family and whatnot. So they don't just kind of work in during the middle of the night and take, take you over. It's a process, but really, you have to have two people on the dance floor to go through that process. Um, so, and it, it really it, it works against the victim in the end because the victim doesn't get as much sympathy from people because people who may have seen this person as a cat or whatever um, then don't give the victim the right amount of support because they think, well, why didn't you see that? Well, I think it's just that old human dynamic. You want somebody to love, and that person comes along, and they say all the right things, and they're really listening to you. Well, all of those guys pointed all that out. They're listening to you because they need to figure out how to manipulate you. That's why they're listening to you, not because they care about you. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, and I do think that it's, I think people don't sympathize with the victim because they kind of oftentimes come in on the end of that process, too. I mean, that we don't know how long it took for that person to get into the situation, how long the psychopath worked on them before. Or if the psychopath is so good, they built up this image around everybody else and they have done enough things to make the, the victim appear stable and stuff, then the people will actually flip on the victim um, and side with the psychopath. I mean, there's been cases where they will actually, the therapist will side with the psychopath and turn on the victim. I mean, even one of those guys talked about that in my interviews. Um, so the victim really gets the short shaft all the way along. So it's harder for them to get out of the situation because they get rejected for it, because it's not agreeing with evil in the world amongst people in general. They have this perception of this person as being such a good person, and then they start to plan enough information about you that all roads lead back to the victim being the problem is how it all, the whole end game turns out. Well, I have one last question to ask you, and it has to do with something that Bill said about psychopaths not being evil. They're, are they simply human? And he goes on to say, when I'm targeting a currently occupied position, my goal is not to harm the incumbent. I simply want them out of the way, whether they are harmed in the process or find a better job elsewhere is of no concern. And my question then is, isn't that the very definition of evil? Well, yeah, and you, you, if you if you read their words, they, they start off with one plot. That's why I, I didn't want to take them anywhere beyond writing, because they, they, they have an interesting plot process. We will start off by saying, I don't want to harm anybody, but then really he, he finishes up a sentence we're talking about harming people. Um, so, you know, you can't have it both ways. We can't antagonize and persuade at the same time. So they start off by saying, yeah, I don't really want to hurt anybody, but really they kind of got in my way, so I kind of had to. Right. Um, it's like, but it, it's really, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I would hate to be, I would hate to be in an office with that guy. 
and I hate to be in a relationship with another two guys um, because all of them, and the other thing is one of the guys was actually the, sent me his eyes that I put on the cover um, because over the years, I've also found that I don't think if you met the guy in person, you probably get that sense of evil that you get from the eye picture on the cover, but there's something about pictures. So I, I started this conversation a few years ago with people, and I said, you know, why don't you go look at your old pictures of this relationship and tell me what you think about and people all came back and said, yeah, I really saw the disconnect. They saw the disconnect between the eyes. They saw the eyes. Well, that's interesting. Different. That's very interesting. So, so that would be one other thing I would say is if you're questioning somebody, take a few good pictures and then take a look at the pictures. Now, it's not conclusive, but you can kind of start to see a pattern. You can you can see if, those, if, if everybody else in the picture has a certain smile and certain eyes. What is this person you're wondering about now? Well, I, I'm you know, sorry, but we're kind of out of time. Did you have one yeah. more point you wanted to make? I'm sorry. No, no, I could go on about this forever because I I found just talking to them so interesting that um, I wasn't sure if I was going to learn anything. So I, I felt like I really did. I did too. And I think people will reading the book. I think that there's something, even though I've only read you guys a couple of excerpts, you have to look at the words and the way the phrasing is, is put and watch how Diane kind of keeps herself not a character and not a part of what's going on, which is a really difficult thing to do when you're interviewing somebody. She, it's not about her, it's about them. And I, I, to me, I mean, that's the best it gets when you're being a journalist. So I thought that that was really well done in this. And you've got to read very carefully when you're this book and you've got to get it because it's at amazon.com again it's psychopaths in our lives my interviews and i think it's really worth the read i think it's worth the read educationally just in case you should run across some of these people and most likely you will but it's also just a fascinating human study about how about different thought processes and even in the acceptance that diane gives the lack of judgment in her questioning allows these three subjects to go probably about as far as anybody has ever gone in being interviewed. And I, and I thought that that was fascinating. So I want to thank you, Diane, for being on the show. Thank you, Allison. Much appreciated. Very interesting. And I want to thank you all for watching. And I want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving.
Thanks.